Fiona Conroy. Um, I'm a farmer just out of Geelong, and I'm here to talk a bit about carbon. Right. Oh, uh, we uh, we met Fiona on Wednesday, Tuesday and Wednesday, at the ABARES conference, and she probably gave one of the, I reckon, one of the most talked about presentations. I think well, I've already told a few people that it was the highlight for me, the best presentation I saw all of the event. I it think was, Fiona. There was there was two there was two presentations that were highlights. Fiona's one and uh the emma germano and versus oh yeah you versus, i was versus, i wasn't versus, in that yeah versus the workers union the union yeah uh, i wasn't in that one yeah is uh, that the one that ended up in a fight <laughs> well it was it wasn't a physical no, fight. disagreement <laughs> disagreement yeah. yeah disagreement yeah he, andrew he, andrew was probably on the sideline going fight 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 but <laughs> no, no. spirited heated yeah. debate i think it's called nowadays yeah. Yeah. So we'll jump into it because uh, there's a lot to unpack. So we'll start off with the the six cents, which is our uh, our warm up. And so we'll we'll throw six words at you, and you just give us the first thing that jumps into your mind. So Matt, you can start. Uh, I'll go with biodiversity. Oh, um, part of good farming. Selling carbon credits. Scary. Black pudding. Yuck. <laughs> Sorry. Hmm. I was going to say black pudding, so I've missed that one. Uh, environmental markets. Bit fuzzy. Uh, Crocs footwear. Oh yuck! <laughs> no we've thanks. had two. We've had one yuck. The the answers to the carbon stuff are spot on, I think, but the answers to the black pudding and the Crocs were not what we would would like to have heard. Oh, it's starting, sorry. It's, it's, start, it's starting to show a bit of a lack of judgment. So right, okay. So it's discredited everything I'm going to say from now on. Um, what else have we got? Conflict of interest in carbon markets. Oh, common. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, we've got a bit to talk about here, haven't we? Is that Matt? I think. Oh, we've done for you. Done. We've done six, haven't we? Yeah, that was it. That was the six. I think I started. I started with biodiversity. I was counting this time, Andrew. Oh, yeah. Sometimes, sometimes Fiona, we forget. We can't count to six. So <laughs> you know, we forget. But I think we've covered them off. Well, technically, we only have to count till three because we only got to count our own ones. But so Fiona, just tell us a quick summary about. Uh, about your farm and what you do and why you're presenting at Airbears? Okay, so look, we farm just outside Geelong. Um, we, we, we're a family farm. We're nothing super big, but we're 400 hectares, 550 mil rainfall. We run a self-replacing Angus herd, which is performance recorded, uh, commercial, producing feeder steers and selling females. Uh, and we've got a super fine self-replacing merino flock, we of the 400 hectares, 100 hectares is leased um, and was previously under crop. Um, and we just record a lot of data. So we've got 30 years of records on productivity, soils, livestock numbers, and performance. So um, it's probably we're probably a little bit unusual because we have lots of data. And one That's, of the yeah. one of the data sets we've got is we soil test and have done for a long time a third of the farm every year. Because you, um, you, you're, you're user both ex Melbourne Uni Ag Science. Yeah, we both um, both did Ag Science. Um, we both 
worked at the Ag Department for different lengths of time, had different career changes and bits and pieces. Um, my husband, Cam Nicholson, is now a consultant and we run a consulting business as well as the farm, uh, but his strength is in agronomy. Oh, and that's what that's what yeah. stood out at the at the presentation you gave, Fiona, was the amount of data and also how long you've been collecting it for. And and in some areas, when it comes to things like you know your carbon in soil, your measurement of carbon in soil, it was going back into the mid nineties from memory, wasn't it? The, that data? Uh, it's been going back as long as they've been putting carbon in standard agronomic soil test results. So um, so so well so well before. Anyone else was doing it in any big way, or before it was was fashionable? Oh, before it was trendy, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and look, I think that's the thing we've we've got this data set because we've been compulsive um, recording data and doing soil tests, and it probably puts us in a fairly unique position. I don't know many other farms. Yeah, that well, have got when that you showed of data. When- when you showed some of the, and we'll probably talk about it, but some of that kind of longer term cyclical nature, uh, when you're testing over that many years, you start to see, or you're able to see it because you've gone through different types of climatic events, like a La Nina to El Nino type scenario that you do see variations. You want to give us a bit of an example yeah. of how that works? Um, look, I suppose um, what we've done is we've been looking at where our soil carbon's been going, but we're also looking at where our phosphorus and potassium and pH are going because they're pretty much the key to driving production. And I think that was the other thing I really wanted to stress is that if you want to focus on a business, and we ABEAR has an E in it for economics, um, is that we have to remember that we're all here because we're running a business and we want to be profitable and productive. Mm-hmm. So um, we've gone through a pasture renovation program, so we've recorded um we can look back and see how soil carbon's improved over time as we've improved uh, soil fertility, we've improved pastures and we've improved grazing management because that's the stuff that all adds to increasing soil carbon, growing more biomass and managing it properly. Um, but, yeah, we can chart where we've gone. And, I'm, yeah, it's about 30 years of soil data. But we've also got a, a figure that is based on science on what our maximum soil carbon levels can be. So for our soil type and our rainfall, um, we can probably get to a maximum of about 3.5% organic carbon. We had, I showed a slide and it was of nine paddocks covering 116 hectares um, that had 153 soil tests since 1995. And we had all the soil fertility data there, but we could see that how that soil organic carbon had trended up from under two and a half percent to heading up towards about three percent um and i think the really key thing is we're using a line of best fit because it does bounce around a lot um when we do soil tests we try to use best agronomic practice so we'll do 20 or 30 tests per paddock in a grid and now we use gps um locations for every soil test we're doing top 10 centimeters i think that's really important to look at as well we're not doing down to 30 but um we can see a line of best fit that's taking us up slowly um towards that three and a half and we're sitting on about three but um when you look at what happens every couple of years you're watching it go up and down it, it bounces around a lot and if we look at um, growing season rainfall and impose that on that graph it appears, and I'm not saying it's definite, but it appears that your soil carbon goes up when you've got um, higher rainfall and it goes down when you have a drought, which sort of fits with the 
it's about the amount of biomass you're growing. Mm. Um, in dry years, soil organic carbon starts breaking down and that's known as mineralisation in agriculture and that's where you release nutrients and you get going again. But yeah, it's not a it's not a given that it's going to be a particular level any year. It does bounce around. So yeah. So on as part of the presentation, like you're down on that sort of uh Gibson not Gibson. Yeah. And you 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 mentioned that you'd you'd obviously moved to perennial pastures. Yeah, yeah. And, so we had sort of annual pastures thirty and, odd years ago. And you put in a bit of trees as well? Yeah, we'd sort of um, – the farms in different blocks that have sort of been added to over time, but um, we've gone into a bit more land class fencing and a bit more subdivision. So we're managing pastures more according to particular soil types and slopes, and that makes grazing management a lot easier, especially having smaller paddocks. But it also means we've been able to customise the types of pastures for certain soil types. So we've got, you know, phalaris-based pastures. We've got ryegrass-based, perennial ryegrass-based pastures and a couple of pastures. We've got fescue um, and we've got one pasture that's got a bit of lucerne and stuff in it to match the soil types and the growing conditions. But, but it also, you've also spreads your growing season as well. You've also um, segmented some of that area off, whether it's in between paddocks and I think you said you double fence and got tree lines within that, but also areas of, of planting within the paddock as well, like a, like a section of yeah. trees. Yeah, so I, I did put up a couple of um, drone photos from up high. And look, the thing is we've done a lot of tree planting since the 80s and 90s, and we're pretty keen on tree planting. Um, my father, who was part of the farm business before he died, was very keen on tree planting as well. So um, we've got about 9 to 10% of the farm under trees. And we started off by um, – so our, our farm is a history of how you should – it shouldn't plant trees because it's changed a lot. But we've – double fenced all our boundaries and that was more a biosecurity thing to keep neighbours sheep or you know the chance of giving each other lice and having a good relationship with your neighbours is pretty important. Um, we fenced off watercourses to sort of try and reduce erosion and improve water quality and we've got a few big dams on watercourses so we use those dams to pump out with solar pumps and reticulate water into troughs around all the paddocks. Um, then we've double fenced all the boundaries on between paddocks um, and then we've got a few woodlots in as well of spotted gum. So we've got everything from, you know, trees that were planted 30 years ago to areas that have been direct seeded as tree plantation. So there's a real mix in the types of trees mm. we've got. Um, everything from sort of pure local Indigenous seed right through to trees that are purely for timber. So now, even though you've sectioned off that area, you've done all this like work, and and then the the work you've done over the years in that improving the soil carbon, that's actually contributed to a much more productive space, right? And and you're getting the results yeah. with the animals you're raising. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So like, um, since we've sort of started on this, and it's the whole package of getting the soil fertility right, getting the pastures right, um, getting the paddock size right. Um, we've effectively doubled our stocking rate at the same time as putting 10% of the farm under trees. So, Because as, as you were doing that presentation, obviously Andrew and I were sitting in there and as you're showing it all and I was looking back at the the time when you, you, know, you had the data you had and how long you've been doing this for, I just kept thinking to myself, all this work you've done and and you're not going to get any ability to, to you know, because it's all previously been done and the, the ACU system of, of kind of, you know, selling carbon doesn't 
doesn't account for what's been done. It's what you're going to do kind of thing, right? And I was thinking, yeah. you're not going to get any benefit from this. But then you came out with a quite, I reckon it was the statement of the conference, Andrew. I think it was you said you'd rather die than sell carbon. <laughs> I um, know oh, what a throwaway, throwaway line that everybody jumped on, but, <laughs> well, but coming from someone that clearly is is passionate and knowledgeable and and is, was ahead of the curve when it comes to all this stuff, right? To then have that comment that 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 spoke volumes to us too, because we've we've been in our own way critical of the current system that it's and, and I actually prior to the presentation you gave. We were both sitting in the carbon one when Emma Germano was fighting the union rep. So you and I were in that other livestock carbon one, and I and I and you come up after that, and I, and was I think you said something to me because I asked the question of the guy that was there spruiking his carbon uh, business, um, and asked him the questions around some of the risks of the the market, and I think you said I'm glad you asked that question because people aren't focusing enough on the risks that are out there, right? And is that part of the reason too? Or the I know they went through the longevity of those contracts that that's a big problem that some farmers that are signing their life away and their children's life away and potentially longer, um, that that's a concern. But there are other concerns we've got as well. And, and um, I think, you know, when you're looking at this, you've got to have a balanced approach. And, and I think that's, you know, that's part of what you're saying. Because I think it's really interesting because I've, we, we, get a, we speak to a lot of farmers and a lot of agribusiness professionals. And, and carbon is coming up more and more often. And one of the things that we quite often hear is that You've got a lot of people out there who are saying it's a risk-free opportunity. It's money. It's money. It's money for nothing. Oh, and it's too good to be true. It probably is. And it's funny because I was watching a documentary uh, on us in Santiago uh, last week, and I was flying back, and I was watching a documentary on Bernie Madoff and his Ponzi scheme. Mm. Mm. And as part of his sales pitch, he also offered risk-free opportunities. Uh, subsequently, $64 billion was lost. So I guess I've always thought that there's no such thing as, one, there's no such market that goes up indefinitely or goes down indefinitely. And there's no market that is completely risk-free. There's no trade that's risk-free at all. So what, what you mentioned when we said about uh, conflict of interest, what do you mm -hmm. mean by that? Look, I, I just think there's a bit of an issue that there's a lot of people out there actively promoting carbon schemes and they're the people who are running the carbon scheme so i mean that has you have to question where's their independence coming from because you know, and i think that's the real challenge i don't think there's a lot of really credible independent information that's readily available to farmers um there's constant constant promotion about oh you know you can do so much well you can put so much carbon in soil you can do this it's fantastic you'll make an alternative income stream but there's not a lot of talk about who's carrying the risk for that and really the risk is 100 percent with the landholder um and i think you know to lock into something in 25 years time is or in some cases plus um is a huge commitment like you know you, you mentioned about locking it in for your kids, well, it could potentially be child abuse because if you've got kids who are then left with something but they've got no flexibility in how they can manage that area because they're committed to managing that part of the farm for somebody else for carbon, then that's going to have an impact on the business. Um, as I sort of said, look, you know, if the climate gets drier and more variable, we, we've got the potential to sequester less carbon and it might be that the best agronomic option might be to go from 
grazing to cropping. Um, there could be all sorts of market signals there, but you've just taken yourself out of that equation because you're locked in. Uh, the other thing is if you fall short when um, – those it's almost of, yeah, you almost got to make up, make make good on the carbon you were meant to yeah. have produced. Yeah, and I mean, and then you're going to have, you may well have to go out into the open market and buy carbon at the current price to meet your obligations, and that's a huge risk. So that's, you don't, so that's sort of precisely exactly what would happen if you were to forward sell grain. And you don't see anyone the, forward selling grain for in twenty five. No, no, maybe so. maybe six months, yeah. but uh, but not not twenty five years, and and that's the risk that they've got is if you sell forward. And you have a frost or hail, you've still got to supply that grain, and you've got to buy it in the marketplace at whatever the prevailing price is, and that's the risk. From the market perspective, too, there's no way you could call it a mature market or you know a market that isn't subject to, like you mentioned as well, just purely the changes to the way methane is now or was calculated over the years meant that you, at one stage, your farm was considered on the old accounting system as being carbon neutral and then they adjusted the, you know, what they considered to be the methane, um, you know, impact on, on the environment. And that meant that now you, you kind of short again. Right. Um, and, and those kind of things where it can just be a stroke of a pen of someone either in Canberra or in Brussels somewhere, if you're part of a, you know, international system, um, that can then imp impact upon the farm also. Right. Yeah. And I look, I think you want to keep those. The other thing is, I suppose we didn't, I've sort of mentioned in that talk is that, Soil testing is not a definite in terms of what results you get. So soil testing itself is variable. Um, and with a lot of these carbon schemes, there's minimal numbers of soil tests and you're relying on one or two soil tests in certain locations. And you could get a totally different result because it's not like um, you've got statistically significant some degrees of freedom with multiple soil tests that iron out variation. So that's an inherent risk in the system as well. Um, you mentioned um, in the in the in the um, speech, you mentioned that you went around and marked the spots where the cows had done their cow pats, and then <laughs> and it was a funny thing because when you said that, like we've, I've got a hobby farm that's nowhere near as um, productive as yours, or probably you know I don't collect the data like you do. I probably should, but um, just walk, we've got a couple of cattle grazing, and and we inherited the or we bought the farm, but when we got it, it was a bit of a moonscape because it was a bit overgrazed with sheep, which you know. Um, had I think it was getting used as a turnout paddock and they were just abusing it so it had hardly any um you know kind of grass left and the soil was like a millimeter high and um it was coming out of the dry season so it looked pretty poor poorly so we let it rest for a while and then we introduced cattle in a smaller number and allowed them to kind of start to fertilize um but my wife as we walked the dogs my wife used to say oh now that we've had many years of the cattle going around you could see where the old cow pats were because they're like a little round green area that was about the size of a cow pat, and, and you've actually gone and done the science and shown that it actually does oh, do good. Yeah. I, don't, I wouldn't know if I'd call it science, but we've done a comparison. So, um, yeah, but, you know, a, a, a cow pat, you can see it when it's there and then it breaks down, but you'll still get the um, jump in fertility because you'll see where the nutrients all were. But, yeah, um, there's a 1.7% different in organic carbon in that top 10 centimetre sample if you hit a cow pad. So, like, God help us if somebody buried a cow in a paddock and that happened to be where your core sample went in down to a metre. So, like, like, it's just – it's it's variable and that's just the nature of soil testing. So it's a risk. Um, but in terms of carbon, and we were talking about full bike um, carbon accounting on farm, like, yeah, the if you're a livestock 
producing business, which we are, and when we've done our, our counting using the GAF tool, 97% of our emissions are coming from livestock and the main greenhouse gas coming out of livestock's methane, and it works out to be 88% of our emissions are methane. Um, when you have global warming potential factors increasing the value of methane in carbon accounting, it, it it's, the goalposts are moving all the time in trying to work out where you stand in terms of your emissions. So I wouldn't be in a rush to go and commit our carbon sequestration to offset other people's emissions. I think we mm. need to keep focusing on what we've got <clears throat> in-house. And um, one of the first steps, I think, for most people, if you've got livestock in particular, is just to work out what your emissions are to begin with before you start thinking about selling carbon. Yeah, well, that's it's interesting yeah. because like, I, I asked a question uh, towards the end of that sort of panel session on whether the market was mature and whether it was a true market, because I don't think it is. And I've had disagreements with some people on this because you mentioned that that me not, not me. Sometimes when you say that on the podcast, you mean me, but you're meaning someone off the podcast, someone off the podcast, <laughs> somebody, somebody who was at the ABS conference as well, I believe. Yeah. Um, yeah. But basically um, if you have a normal market, I use wheat as an example, you've got X number of, supply you've got x amount of demand the demand is usually people who are using it to feed animals feed humans or make bio biofuels of some description <clears throat> but that is pretty normal buyers and sellers but in the carbon market the majority of the demand comes through government mandate government says okay you're a coal power station you must offset your emissions you're a cement factory you must offset your emissions but what we saw last year, last March, was the government actually came out and changed the rules overnight, which meant that the cost of credits effectively dropped by about 40% in a very short period of time. That doesn't happen generally, and I'll use this generally, in grain markets, that governments come out and change the demand for something. I suppose it does sometimes, but not to the same extent of this, where it's almost 100% based on government demand so it's this market where if we have a government you can sign up for a contract for 25 years that's what four five six parliaments oh yeah everything can change it's... so you could you, you could have you could have the greens come in and decide to increase demand but then next parliament you could have jimmy come in and decide that he doesn't want any carbon credits so this is the issue you've got is you've got a market that's dictated by government demand and it can be changed at the flick of a pen so it's another risk oh it, there's risks <clears throat> everywhere I, I think though the the carbon issue is not going to go away it's going to become bigger and bigger and we're seeing more issues internationally in terms of trade coming up with carbon i mean there's you know agriculture is not included in a lot of it at the moment but it will be included eventually we can't stay out of it the whole time um well new zealand yeah, is starting to move that way as well yeah yeah and we looked you know border adjustment tariffs to get product into potentially into europe um you know we've got to we've got to get on top of it we've got to start getting the basics in place now um and i think we get, we're starting to see like as i said we supply um feeder steers for feedlots and some of those feedlots are now trialing things like asparagopsis and probably three knob as well to reduce methane and they're then looking at 
how do they account for their scope three emissions, which will be the feeder steers they're bringing in. So that's where I think, you know, once you understand what your emissions are, the next thing to start looking at is if you can manage your emissions, you can have an idea of what your carbon sequestration can be on farm. But the next thing to start working at is what's your emission intensity and can you use that to your marketing advantage down the track? Because it's going to be an emerging um, priority, I think, for people we supply. Oh, definitely. I agree. And it is going to be one of those things that regardless of whether you believe in climate change or not, doesn't matter. It's what the government is going to end up enacting that matters. And uh, But the reality is that um, it's still one of those risks where you probably don't want to be selling carbon, especially, you know, Look, at the moment, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it, if demand's going to increase. It's a bit out of the wild west, really, in terms of agriculture. So I'd just be sitting back um, and we, just getting your baseline done, really, and understanding what you're doing within your business. We and collecting and collecting your own data, so you've got a, a you know history of, uh, of like what you guys have got. You're starting to develop that and uh, develop that trend, that pattern, but also to see when you're seeing the you know the line of best fit showing you're increasing your carbon in soil or whatever that you're also then being able to overlay that against what other benefits are we accruing now on farm as part of doing. I guess what's considered best practice, you know, looking after the land as best you can and how that flows through to a better environment for your workers, a better environment for your oh, animals, yeah. you know. Um, look, you know, as I said, you know, increasing stocking rate, um, being more productive. Um, look, certainly with the trees, we're seeing, you know, better land, you know, we're picking up lambing paddocks, getting, you know, it's a key thing with lambing in spring with merinos is to have good shelter there's a lot of other factors like mob size and twins and singles and feed on offer but um shelter is pretty crucial uh the biodiverse and look you know we also we ai cows in november and so our cows are joining november to december and you'll often see them seeking out shade and you go oh, i don't know what the impact on conception rates and fetal loss would be if you had cattle out in stinking hot weather and they're all black because they're angus but um it's going to be something that's better for animal welfare but also i like we've noticed big changes in biodiversity i just use a few apps around the farm like things like ebird and frog id and stuff and we've gone from like having maybe 47 different bird species to now 127 that i've recorded so i don't know how we get down to looking at biodiversity markets because it's hard enough to Measure carbon, measuring biodiversity is pretty bloody hard. So, well, I think that's the other that's the other one that is makes it even more interesting. The, the the government's looking at, currently at a biodiversity mechanism or market mechanism, but it's not going to be the same as the carbon market. So it's going to be different again, most likely. I don't know. I don't know how you're going to ever get to it unless you can somehow have a criteria of comparing certain types of different biodiversity and, and giving it some kind of a scoring system or something. Like at the, as it stands now, carbon's carbon, right? So you can kind of measure and, and compare compare like for like. But how do you, when you're talking about biodiversity, how, you know, you, you can't, you're going to have to somehow um, standardise it. And that, like standardising biodiversity, it's, it, it, that, it's like a, an anomaly, isn't it? Yeah. But, but, but one of the issues with it is that the government at the moment mandates that companies have to have X amount of carbon credits to offset their emissions in certain industries. But the biodiversity is liable to be a voluntary system, where it's up to companies if they want to buy biodiversity credits or not, which again puts another element of risk because 
the, the company's, the buyer at the end of the day has to find a value that they can assign to that. Which I'm not well, sure then, then even, then even more, you're going to have to have more, more scrutiny in the way of how you collect the data and have data and, and systems that can be independently verified by a reputable group to say, this person's claiming X, Y, Z on biodiversity and it's been assessed and shown to be accurate or, or, or measured or somehow, and it's got the tick of approval from whoever it is that has the reputation in that space. That, I, that's I, I the think, only way. I think, I think it's got ticks. Literally got ticks, the whole thing. <laughs> I think um, I think the key thing, whatever it is, and like, and it's the same with carbon, it's got to be based on good science um, and it's got to have integrity and you probably have to be audited. If you're going to make any In, claims, yeah. you have to substantiate what you're doing and it has to be robust um, and it has to be able to stand scrutiny and auditing. Um, I think like what we've done just recently is like we're not we're sort of just doing in-house accounting so our figures are all how we interpret them and we're trying to be really conservative to be fair and reasonable to work out where we're going rather there's no point lying to yourself to make yourself feel good because that's not going anywhere but um so yeah we've done tree estimates using um full cam on where our carbon sequestration has been going with trees and we've been conservative on that because there's only so many species under the ACCU way of measuring trees that fit. And so we've dropped that back. And once again, it's not only species, it's tree growth determined by rainfall as well. And then sequestration tapers off as they mature. But um, so to try and get a bit of a baseline, we've just gone recently and had one metre soil cores done in line with the process under the ACCU way of measuring soil carbon and we're trying to like it's too early to sort of interpret those yet because there's a lot, lot of stuff there but we're going to have to make sure that we're using lyco carbon all the soil carbon we've measured in the top 10 centimeters has been done with walkley black um, and that's not the standard so we're using lyco carbon and we're also making sure that we've got bulk density and gravel um, as you go down the soil profile because that has a big impact on soil carbon sequestration further down um, as you change into different soil types. So um, some of the carbon schemes out there haven't been following those protocols. So that's where it gets a bit questionable, I think. So what we'd like to do potentially is we could is go and register what we've done with Climate Active. Um, so yeah, then we've got yeah. an auditable system and we've got all the documentation to verify what we've got. But like that's where we think we might go. Yeah. And you, you mentioned as well that on the talk there that one of the, I guess, uh, frustration, I suppose, around the ACU system is that anything you've done in advance, you, know, you, you can't get that credit for the stuff you've done in the past, whereas in the climate active system, you can get acknowledgement of what you've already done. Yeah. Well, look, yeah. And we've got trees that even though they might be, 15, 20 years old, they're, they're still sequestering carbon, but not at the same rate in their first 10, 15 years. But, um, yeah, under the ACU system, you only really get a tree you plant today or tomorrow in the system. You can't look at what you've done in the past, so which is a bit of a challenge. Mm. No, that's... Um... I just got a curiosity, Fiona. You, you've been, you've obviously looked at this for a long time, longer than most. And, and I guess you and have probably been to a few presentations on carbon 
have you actually had any, how often have you heard any sort of mention of the risks of getting involved in carbon markets? Oh, you don't hear about the risks at all, um, generally. And look, and look, I've I've heard a couple of people say, oh, they were thinking about um, signing up to a carbon program, and I've always, you know, you don't want to be the wet blanket, so <laughs> socially, because you go, oh. but you go, well, do you actually, what are your emissions? And often people haven't got a good handle on what their emissions are, but the idea of Oh, soil carbon, you know, we've got this alternative income source. It's going to be fantastic. Um, it's, we might be overselling and under-delivering, I think, in that space. And I don't think people do talk around the risks enough at all. So I, th I think, though, sometimes, Fiona, that, like, say, Andrew and I, our view of it and our risk assessment is sometimes based around that market approach, <laughs> right? And we can't we can't hold ourselves out to be, you know, experts in, in on, on the ground farming like you're doing and the work you're doing, you know, to really make an impact, right? Um, and so if we say, oh, there's risks there, people might think, oh, but you, you guys don't, you know, necessarily have all of the, um, you know, on the yeah, ground but, knowledge, but, but, right? But, but, well, you're, you're, but, but Fiona we're, we're, is, Fiona but, is the, you know, an expert in the space doing it and has been doing it for decades. And I wouldn't you're, know if and I was even, an expert. Well, but I'm saying you're, <laughs> yeah, you know, you're, in, in you're a, what I'm saying yeah, but in a field in a field that is is kind of becoming more popular and more spoken about, you were doing it well before that, and you're you're obviously passionate and aware and know what you're doing in that space. So, you know, the fact that you are also critical of the risks and 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 say there's not enough around the risks has a lot more credibility to a degree than you know well, than people that aren't necessarily doing well, it at I all. Think, right? I think the difference is that what I, I think is also almost a bit different, Matt. In that mm. Fiona has looked at it from from her scientific background and we've looked at it from our mm. and trade background and we've wrote a 10,000 word report on the risks that farmers face engaging in carbon markets which hasn't been published will uh, be soon will be soon uh, but the reality is we've actually through the conversations realized that we've both came up with the same results but coming from different perspectives, from different perspectives. Yeah, yeah. That's well. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. So Fiona has the the scientific, views. the scientific and the practical background. We're coming from a markets focus, but arriving at similar conclusions around the risks of what of what you know, and 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 those that are trying to spruik and sell the product um, in in the way that they are that that aren't necessarily looking at it, it being totally upfront about all the risks and that are you know are doing it because there's a it's, advantage it's, to Matt, that, right? Matt, don't be a wet blanket. <laughs> it's it's risk free money. Why would you stop people getting money for nothing? Um, I've got some all... Bitcoin. I've got some Bitcoin to sell you. Andrew. I've got I've got yeah. a bridge a bridge I can sell you. Yeah. Yeah. There's also a prince in Nigeria that just wants your bank <laughs> details. So, um, but I think look, there's a lot of you know, there's some really good people out there that are right on carbon. And like as I said, Cam, my husband's been doing a lot of the number crunching, so I don't want to take too much credit for that. But um, People like Richard Eckhart at Melbourne University yeah, yeah. are really out there trying to get people to understand it. And they're running a course now, getting people to do um, put their numbers through the GAF tool. I'm part of the um, Victorian Agriculture and Climate Change Council and part of the Victorian state government has been trying to get farmers, put 250 farmers through a pilot just so they can understand their emissions. Um, people who've gone through the Victorian Farm Monitor Program have had the opportunity to do that as well. Yeah, 
I think the first step is people have just got to understand what their emissions are and don't jump too far down the track and sell soil carbon. Just learn to crawl before you start running an Olympic race, really, and um, make sure you've got the facts before you do anything. Well, we, we said earlier in the piece too, and Andrew made the analogy to the grain and, and, and talking about forward selling grain. And effectively, if you are forward, you carb, you're selling carbon out that many years, you wouldn't forward sell your grain out 25 years. Why are you doing it for your carbon? You know, it's well, as simple as that, really. Yeah. Well, if you're a livestock producer, it's like forward selling prime lambs out 25 years. Like, yeah. Yeah. Who knows what the market's going to be? You don't know what the season's going to be. You don't even know what type of sheep you might have. So, mm. you, know. you mentioned as well at the conference and you spoke about um, that you felt that some of the stuff in this space, if you are looking to get advice in this space, it's a bit of a frustration that um, from the from the governmental or the agency perspective, um, there's not as many uh, people that can assist in that space, maybe through funding cuts, but also you'd mentioned that it's something that you feel is probably best done on a one-on-one scenario because of the variation of I guess, you know, different farms and different approaches and whatnot. Is that, do you want to just give us a yeah, bit more yeah. of a... I mean, look, every farm business is quite different. Um, every, you know, it could be soil types, it could be where people want to go, it could be farm history. Um, you know, in terms of trying to develop a business plan, um, I think just to try and crunch through these numbers, it really does need one-on-one advice. Um Going back to that VAT pilot being run by the VAC, people are getting one-on-one advice to develop a bit of an understanding of their soil carbon emissions. But I mean, but then you get the data and then it's, well, what do you do with it? How do you change things? And look, I, you know, I, th- I put up a graph there about emissions intensity. Um, and we've, we, you know, we've got our emission intensity down with beef to outside what is the average. So we, we're doing well, but the way we, when you look at why is it like that, it's because we've put a lot of farm ma- good farm management practices over the top of our beef system in terms of, you know, maximum pressure on fertility, especially in a self-replacing herd where you've got cows that are running around producing emissions for two years before they carve. And, you know, you don't want people carving heifers at three. You want them carving heifers at two. You want all those heifers to get in calf when you join them so you're not offloading pregnancy-tested empty heifers where you're if you can avoid that, you're always going to get some. Um, you want want them to have a live calf and then get back in calf again. So, you know, then having good growth rates, matching animal demand with feed um, to have good nutrition, good quality pastures, um, looking at optimising animal health so you don't have things like worms slowing production, trying to get maximum growth rates. That's all where you make money as a farm business. And it also just happens that that's where you kick goals in reducing your emission intensity as well. So they're the sort of things I think that people need that one-on-one bit of guidance with. It's not just one size fits all because every farm system is going to be slightly different as well as their soil types and pastures and grazing management and stuff as well. So it's it's the whole package. But I'd like to think that good farm practice is really supportive of good increasing soil carbon or managing soil carbon. You increase soil carbon, you improve your soil characteristics as well. So, you know, then you become more productive and you grow more grass. So, yeah, it's a it's all a whole, it's all together, really. Mm. You can't look at one thing in isolation, I suppose, is what I'm trying to say, and that's why I think you need to have, in some cases, that one-on-one advice to get people to understand what's going on and how they can influence things. 
Well said, I think. Um, Andrea, we, oh no, I'm, I'm conscious that um, Fiona said before we started recording that she's got some things she needs to attend there, so I didn't want to kind of hold up too much of her time, but um, I reckon we've nearly covered off on most of the things, have we? You're, you're, you must be on mute or something, mate, because I can't. There um, you go. There we go. The, the, the main thing I just think from it is that um, it's the same as any market, really. And, and, and trading any sort of commodity in that you need to be aware of what you're actually doing, what you're actually signing up for. And whilst whilst I think it's good to get in, independent sort of you know, advice from whether it's an agronomist, whether it's a carbon specialist, I actually think it's important before you sign up to those contracts. And you wouldn't do this probably with a grains contract because there's standardized protocols is get legal advice as well. And, and get a, a lawyer to look over any contracts to see what are the outs and what are the risks. Because again, I think it's a very immature market. And, and it's one of these ones that when you said, when you said, uh, uh, I'd rather die than sell a carbon credit at the moment. <laughs> I think I, uh, if I was eating something, I would have choked on it. Uh, because Sorry. Even, even from the point of view of, of uh, the hyperbole that we hear about carbon markets, is that carbon markets are going to be worth a fortune in the future. But we hear that from the same people telling you to sell carbon credits. So why would you sell something just now that's going to be worth a lot more in the future? Yeah, there's a lot of vested interest in there that you that you may not see straight away, isn't it? That people are you know encouraging certain behaviours, not because it's necessarily good for the farmer, but it's good for the, the those that are selling the idea. idea. Yeah. I think, look, the other key thing is that, never seems to get mentioned is you can't, can't can't count carbon twice. So if you sell it, you can't use it to, as part of your system in terms of um, offsetting your own emissions. It's I'm gone. Not, I'm not sure that's completely true, Fiona, that you can't count it twice. Well, some people you're, do. You're, yeah. not, you're, not suppo- you're not supposed to count it twice. But <laughs> I mean, I'm, you do no. hear stories of overseas businesses that have sold the same carbon credits multiple times, but... Um, Look, the ACCU system is meant to be the gold standard in having the right approach. So, as I said, look, this stuff's all very immature and developing, but I just wouldn't want to commit to something when down the track, if you want to look at, okay, emissions intensity is going to be a a thing we can use to market because we're going to be a scope three supplier for another business, and that could be you supplying grain. If you've sold those carbon credits, you don't have them anymore. Somebody else owns them. You're stuck with managing the land for them. You're carrying all the risk that if you they're not there, you've got to go and then buy them on the market when um, it's time to settle up. But you can't use them in your own business. Um, so you're potentially putting your business premium at risk, I think. Um, you're better to have it in-house. Because yeah, it's not – like I'm, I'm curious, and this is maybe a, a question that you've looked at or not. Like, What is – what is the break-even point for actually making it worthwhile? Like, how many tons of carbon oh. do you need to actually sell to make it worthwhile to actually make? Oh, make I haven't got those from- figures. Cam has, but I know he crunched the numbers for us, and for all the auditing and stuff, it was it wasn't worth it. Really, it was it, and I don't have those figures at my fingertips. But like it for all that risk, what you're putting yourself out there for is not a great return. Look, and but. I also think, you know, this is in our system. I'm only talking about 
the way we farm in our conditions. Absolutely, yeah. In a pastoral zone where you've got big areas um, and where you could potentially change soil carbon by going grazing management, letting things revegetate, and you've got big areas and you're coming from a very low base, yeah, look, you might be able to do really well there. But for someone like us in uh, Victoria with high rainfall and well-established perennial pastures, there isn't a lot of real room to go up. Um, and I don't think we'd fit the ACCU requirements anyway. So, um, because we're already there. Mm. Yeah, it harks back to that advice of, um, uh, of kind of get, yeah, or, or get your butt, you know, chop, if you haven't chop, anything, chop, yeah. chop everything down first and then start. <laughs> <laughs> get your baseline set and then, you know, then beyond that, just, you know, get some good quality independent advice and in terms of how you're going to kind of progress in there. But, you know, don't um, you know tread very carefully when it comes to going down the pathway of selling anything or entering into yeah, any contracts. And, and I think, look, you know, the way we look at it is we're beef and wool producers and that's what we try and be good at. So let's just focus on that and not get distracted by this carbon thing. Um, we can make, but no, 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 we can make yeah, more money by being again. better yeah, yeah, producers. Yeah. Really, I know what you're saying there, but when you say not get distracted by this carbon thing, yet you've got you know 30 years plus worth of data, so there's been some level <laughs> oh. of not, it's, it's not it's not distraction. Now it's just being a good farmer, isn't it? Oh, well, we're, I, I, we've got data like that on the sheep and the cattle as well. So yeah, as I sort of said, we're pretty obsessive about data, and we've got a lot there. But just interesting when you pull the carbon stuff out, that's what we that's what's happening. Um, but, yeah, look, I think if we could get into a system where we can quantify and have integrity with some data on our emissions intensity down the track, that's probably where um, we need to be. If we can look at baselining some figures so we've got something we can refer to in the future, that's important. But I wouldn't be jumping into a carbon market now. Um, it's There's too many variables and there's too much risk and all that risk falls on the farmer. It is all going to come down to individual contracts as well, though, because they aren't they aren't standardised. So yeah. if if you had a contract that was only a year or two years, then potentially you would, but not multi generational. I don't think not at this stage in the game. Yeah, and I mean, who knows if you sign up to a scheme now, whether that will still be in existence in twenty five years' time too. Mm. So it was interesting. There was one person there on the panel who um, they are involved in the more sort of arid zones um, and they'd sold carbon and then he did make a comment that he'd noticed that the carbon that they had sold had then been resold as um, having Aboriginal carbon and he was sort of laughing about that and I thought, well, that just is a red flag for integrity <laughs> in that system when carbon credits they're sold are being rebadged as something else. So, you know, it should set off alarm bells really. So speaking of which, uh, we're going to be launching the Ag Watchers Carbon Credit Scheme. <laughs> Um, <laughs> assessment will be based on uh, guesswork and guesstimates, mm -hmm. uh, but we'll only be charging 20% of any carbon credits that are accumulated. So. And it comes with a free cap and a stubby holder? Uh, and some black pudding. Black pudding. Yeah. And if you, don't want, the, if you don't want the black pudding, if you don't like the black pudding, then um, you can leave it with us and we'll dispose of it in a, in a sustainable manner. <laughs> in a hole where somebody might... <laughs> Put a one meter soil probe into <laughs> end. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, exactly. Oh, well, there you go. So we're um, 
I think we're we're if we're getting to this stage where we're making Blake pudding jokes, we're nearly at the end, Andrew, aren't we? Yeah. yeah. But uh, look, it's been fabulous. Um, we're from you can see we only just you know saw the presentation days ago, and we had to get you on straight away because we we're so excited about your presentation. I know you were nervous before you gave it, but it was it was a top presentation. We're really pleased you're able to come on so quickly and speak to us um about um about what you spoke about there at ABS. Oh well, thank Appreciate you very much. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Um watch this space, I suppose, in terms of carbon. So thank you. Absolutely. No worries. Thanks very much. See you when you've got nothing on. Ciao for now.